Hey crew, before we start our latest mission, I want to remind you that you can get updates on the show, plus news and reviews from the world of Trek, by following us on Twitter and liking us on Facebook. Go to twitter.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D, or facebook.com at E-I-S-T-P-O-D, or both, and click follow or like to get on board. Plus, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your media platform of choice. And when you do, give us a review, would you? At the very least, give us a rating, because that's how iTunes and other platforms know we're doing a good job. And people who do good jobs get more exposure. So if you like the show, give us a review or a rating, and it would really help us out. And finally, if you really like the show and you really want to help us out, click over to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod, where you'll find our Patreon page. Money may be worthless in the 24th century, but we are not there yet, and your contributions can go a long way towards keeping us flying and bringing you weekly looks at the world of Trek and more conversations with authors, artists, actors, and aficionados of said world. There are many different tiers or ranks at which you can join, and many rewards available up to and including a chance at appearing as a guest on the show yourself. So head to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod to join our ranks today. Any questions, you can contact the show at eistpod at gmail.com. And now, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing frequencies open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the show where we boldly go into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Caliban, and just to get it out of the way at the top of the show, it's a fake. There. <laughs> now that that's taken care of, I'm joined on this episode by New York Times bestselling author David Mack, who's written over two dozen Star Trek novels and the Deep Space Nine episodes, Starship Down, and It's Only a Paper Moon. And I should add, David is writing the first tie-in novel for the upcoming show, Star Trek Discovery, which I will try and fail to get some information about on this program. David, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, Today we'll be talking about In the Pale Moonlight, the 19th episode of the sixth season of DS9. And you've picked a big one this time. This episode is often said to be the best episode of DS9, if not Star Trek in general. And it's near or it's uh, near the top of many best of lists. In fact, at the 50th anniversary Star Trek convention in Vegas in uh, August, fans voted it the second best episode of the franchise after City on the Edge of Forever. So I'm not sure I'm not sure I would put it quite that high in my personal list, but it's very high up. I would say it's definitely in my top 10. Oh, sure. Uh, However, I tend to uh, have slightly skewed preferences. I mean, I, I like the tearjerker episode. So <laughs> sure. for me, for me, the ep- the DS9 episode, The Visitor, uh, is one of my oh, all-time yeah, sure. favorites. Sure, which was also written by uh, Michael Taylor, who wrote this episode. Indeed. Or the, tel- or the teleplay, yeah. So today we're going to explore what it is about this episode that provokes that kind of response and fandom. But first, David, I have a question for you. I didn't realize that you wrote the dialogue for the Star Trek Deep Space Nine computer game, The Fallen. Yes. Which I have very fond, if somewhat faded, memories of. What was that process like? It was quite interesting. I was approached by the producers because I had been working at that time on the Star Trek Omnipedia, which was sort of like the encyclopedia, but on a CD-ROM. Right. 
And the idea was that it was supposed to be something that could be virtually updated via the internet in years to come, but I guess the sales weren't there, so the plans for later support fell through. But because of the connections I made at Simon & Schuster Interactive, I was approached about doing the game. And, of course, by that point, I had the episode you know, credits behind me. So they uh, made a deal with me, and I wrote the dialogue. They had done the story for the game, and so I wasn't really writing the story. But I was basically given a series of scenarios, and I would be asked, for instance, in this scenario, write lines of dialogue for the following characters and the following circumstances. Sure. And so it would be... I would write a line for Cisco. I'd write a, a line for Worf. I'd write a line for Dax. I'd write a line for O'Brien, Bashir, etc. I would do variants uh, based on the different branching uh, outcomes that could occur in any scene, and it was all done in uh, an Excel table format. Okay, and and that's how uh, a lot of stuff like this is organized for video games because you're really basically working in terms of uh, if else programming. You're working with spreadsheets, databases. Uh, and it's all going to be put into a database. So that was how they worked. They would send me an Excel file, and then I would write the dialogue in the Excel file and then send the files back to them. And uh, it was a really interesting gig uh, trying to figure out you know, the finer points of what would Cisco say versus what Kira would say. Right. Uh, you know, to given the same you know, starting set of circumstances, the same outcomes – how do you tweak the dialogue just a little bit so that you're not just repeating one line of dialogue in another character's voice? Sure. And so it was a really interesting exercise in getting inside the heads of characters and figuring out what their particular dialogue patterns were and what their points of view were. Sure. Uh, the game was loosely based on the Millennium Trilogy by Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens. Um, I'd have to imagine that there's a fraternity or a community of sorts for Trek writers and novelists. Are there any particular guidelines that you follow when adapting somebody else's work? Like, sorry, but I'm going to have to cut this character, or we're going to need a little more here to make this work. Well, this was a little different in that I did not do the story sure, for the fall one. So that, those negotiations would have occurred between the person drafting the story and doing the adaptation and then Gar and Judy on the other side. Right. When we're working in the novels, for instance, and I'm using characters or situations set in motion by other writers, right. and I want to do something that changes the status quo of those characters or those situations, mostly that is taken care of by the editor. The editor is supposed to be the one wrangling these details and keeping everything straight. But you are correct in that there is, as we say, a fraternity of Star Trek writers and creators. Sure. So we tend to stay in touch with one another. Sure. And when we're going to be doing something radical like killing a character off or changing something about their, you know, their life status, we tend to contact one another and say, hey, this character you created in this book, I really like that character. I want to bring that person forward and use them in this way in this story. And most of the time, we all just say, oh, that's great, because it's very flattering when someone or something that you've created and added to this sprawling shared universe, when someone else sees potential in it or likes it enough that they want to use it themselves uh, in their story, it, it's very flattering because sure. you, you feel like you've contributed something of value. So we almost always, uh, you know, say, well, okay, that's great. Here's a little bit of background information that maybe didn't make it into my book, but which might be useful to you. Okay. Here's some, 
here's something I was going to establish about the character, but I just didn't have the right place to do it. But maybe given the story you've told me, you could seed that here and here. And they would say, oh, of course, that makes perfect sense. You know, now I can see the subtext. And so we do stuff like that. We we tell each other, you know, stuff that we were thinking but didn't get to do. And we often will hand off uh, those ideas to the next person in line. And then a lot of times someone will say, I, I really love what so-and-so writer did to expand on, you know, this character established by so-and-so. And what they don't realize, of course, is that, it's all uh, a group effort it's from it's someone all, else, <laughs> right? Well, that it's all collaborative. Sure, sure. Well, the last time that you were on the show, we discussed uh, who mourns for Idanias and the themes of humanism and social evolution involved in that episode. This time, not to be outdone, we're tackling more heavy subjects like patriotism and moral relativism. More, yeah, exactly. Uh, lying to a populace, committing crimes for the greater good. Uh, and also uh, whether or not our heroes can live with it after all. Uh, all this and a title that references Batman, too. Does it reference Batman? Oh, that's right. You're right. It does. Yeah, that's what Ronald D. Moore said. Yes. Uh, Who dances with the devil in the pale moonlight. Yeah. Why? Uh, uh, Tell me why this episode specifically. What's your personal connection to it? Why'd you want to watch this one? Well, this one has always spoken to me because it gets to the heart of exploding the myth of the utopian federation. Uh, And this was something that Deep Space Nine as a series did in many ways, both uh, broad and subtle. And I thought this was one of the best examples of it. Mm -hmm. One of of the running themes on DS9 is that it's very easy to be a, a saint in paradise But when you are thrown out of paradise and you are forced to live in a more morally gray universe, one that is more violent, uh, less forgiving, uh, then you have to start making compromises for the sake of survival. Right. And we see that, you know, I think that line was even said at one point uh, in in a different episode prior to this. I think it might have been Paradise Lost. And um, but this one was particularly interesting because it really gets to the heart of Cisco who is, you know, the the series lead, is emblematic of this sense of integrity, of honor, of duty, and and, uh, being a a good Federation citizen, being a good Starfleet officer. But then when he starts seeing people that he has known his entire adult life, you know, showing up on casualty lists and fatality lists week after week, when the bodies start to pile up, when entire worlds start falling to the enemy – he has to start making hard choices. And he realizes that there comes a point when principle has to go by the wayside. He even says it himself, I am prepared to do whatever it takes to bring the Romulans into the war effort. Right. And with an extremist statement like that, the implied you know, message is, I will sacrifice my principles, I will sacrifice integrity, I will do whatever needs to be done, because at a certain point you realize that the, it's nice to have abstract principles, but if the cost is concrete lives, then at some point you have to start weighing the two against one another. Right. And we'll talk about exploding that myth in just a second, but first I wanted to do some of the uh, particulars here. Uh, it is the 16th or sorry, the 19th episode of the sixth season. Like I said, it was first aired on the 15th of April in 1998. The teleplay was by Michael Taylor, who, as we said, wrote the visitor for DS nine and many episodes of star Trek Voyager. The story came from Peter Allen fields, who was a writer of many episodes of TNG and DS nine, including the teleplay for the inner light. And he also wrote blood oath, which uh, has been mentioned on this show previously. It was directed by Victor Lobel, and the start date for this episode is given by Cisco with a little help from the computer as 51721.3. 
David, can you give us a 50-word synopsis of In the Pale Moonlight? We open with Cisco giving a personal log to the computer. He seems troubled. He is in a confessional mood. He needs to confess things that he has done in the name of bringing the Romulans into the war effort. And he basically says that he is recording this personal log in an effort just to get the facts straight, to see if he can rationalize it for himself, and because there's nobody else he can talk to, not even Dax, he says. Mm -hmm. And we find that as he recounts events, what has happened is that he has engaged in a series of actions uh, of varying levels of criminality uh, that have escalated one after another, uh, to commit fraud, to basically cover up the crimes of other men in order to enlist some of them in this conspiracy. Uh, he has enlisted the aid of Garak, who is notably untrustworthy and duplicitous and dangerous. <laughs> and in the course of all of this, lives are lost, and then eventually uh, they concoct this grand forgery to convince a Romulan senator that the Dominion is planning to attack Romulus, and therefore Romulus should preemptively act against the Dominion. This, of course, goes hideously wrong. The recording that they have created is exposed by the senator as a fake. He claims that he is going to expose this information when he gets home, and he departs the station. But a couple of days later, before the Romulan senator returns to Romulus, his ship is destroyed by apparent sabotage, and it is suspected by the Tal Shiar, the Romulan intelligence service, that the sabotage was the work of the Dominion because the senator's last known stop before heading home was the planet Sukara, which is under Cardassian control. Right. His stop at DS9 was kept secret for obvious reasons. And as a result, the forged data rod, which did not pass scrutiny with the senator, is then uh, suspected to be uh, verified by the Tal Shiar because any flaws in the forgery are now going to be written off as damage caused by the explosion aboard the ship. And just as Garak predicts, because he's the one who lays this all out for Cisco, just as Garak predicts, the ruse does work. Romulus comes into the war with a vengeance, striking numerous Dominion and Cardassian targets in quick succession. And... So it should be a cause for victory. It should be a cause for celebration. But because of all of the moral compromises and all of the murder, et cetera, that has gone on, Cisco feels deeply burdened by the weight of his conscience over what he's done. And uh, that's pretty much the whole gist of the episode. And by the end of it, he's saying to himself, I had to take this on because I can live with it. I think I can live with it. And he keeps repeating it as if to try and convince himself. Right. And then in a very telling final gesture, the last line of the episode is computer erase that entire personal log. And we cut to black. Right. That is a very complete synopsis. Um, a couple of facts about the episode. Uh, the working title of the episode was Patriot. And the core of the idea reportedly came from a discussion in the writer's room about important turning points in U.S. history, like the Gulf of Tonkin incident and the Watergate scandal. And one has to imagine that if this had aired after 9-11, there would be very poignant parallels to, say, Colin Powell going to the U.N., for instance, uh, to make uh -huh. the case for the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't know if that makes Vrenak, Hamid Karzai, and Garrick Dick Cheney or what, but I'm sure there's some parallels there. Um, 
After considering the effect uh, that those events had on our society, story writer Peter Allen Fields was asked to come up with a story about a secret that would have similar repercussions in the world of DS9. And I think the original premise had Jake, in his role as a journalist, discovering a scandal involving uh, First Minister Shakar of Bajor. Right. Cisco trying to get Jake to drop the story, but that was ultimately altered to make uh, Jake discover a secret about Cisco himself. Uh, and in that treatment, uh, Jake would interview Garrick or want to. Uh, Garrick would refuse, and he would uh, pressure Cisco to get Garrick to accept, and Cisco tells him to just drop it, which, of course, makes Jake dig further, and he discovers that Cisco is involved in a plan similar to what we get in this episode, uh, trying to bring the Romulans into the war. And I think that was dropped ultimately because um, the writers believed at that point that Jake and Cisco were just too close after so long on the show. Like, even something like this couldn't really drive a wedge between the characters. It wasn't going to be plausible. Yeah, you, you could tell that. Yeah, um, Ronald D. Moore, uh, the producer and writer uh, for DS Nine, uh, reportedly heavily rewrote the final script, and he came up with the idea of the story being told in flashback through the years of Cisco's personal log, uh, which is an interesting device in this show because there aren't many times that you get a character who's looking, you know, directly into the camera and almost breaking the fourth wall. And I think that's part of what gives this episode so much emotional heft. Yeah, is that you have Avery Brooks who is. Uh, trained in a very theatrical style of acting. He's, you know, a theater professional. Being able to speak directly to the camera and break that fourth wall, it makes for a very intense emotional connection with the viewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when he gets to, you know, really start building up and, you know, releasing that emotion when he talks about people are dying every day. Right, and he's right. really hitting you with the weight of his voice. Uh, I think that that really is part of what makes this episode resonate for so many people. Yeah, it's very confessional. And Victor Lobel, the director, also worked with him on very specific uh, blocking for those scenes. So right. I would emphasize what you were talking about. And I know that those scenes were shot almost completely in continuity from start to finish to right. give that feel of it being you know a single log recording that he's giving. Exactly. And they did some really great stuff with the blocking. Uh, Victor Lobel said that it was one of the most carefully and meticulously blocked episodes he had ever done because they wanted to make sure that each shot could cut together with the next because they were using a lot of very subtle cut on motion uh, techniques, you know, to basically transition from one scene to another. They were doing a lot of, a lot of match cuts. And the other thing that they did, which was particularly uh, subtle. And again, this is a, a nice bit of theatricality is when we open the episode, Cisco is in his uniform looking very prim uh, you know, the the way he normally does, very proper. And then he starts little by little sort of pulling off the, the uniform jacket. First he unzips the uniform jacket, then he removes the uniform jacket. Slowly the shirt collar becomes more unbuttoned, the vest is opened wider. And this was a deliberate choice, this uh, use of him sort of peeling away the layers of the uniform to expose more of himself as a metaphor for the bearing of his soul. Yeah. Uh, And it works very effectively as that as well. Although it makes me continually question, I don't understand how these uniforms work. There's like a sweater jacket thing, and then you take that off, and there's kind of like a vest or like overall sort of top, and then you've got like a long underwear shirt under that. Like I never really understand how these uniforms really go together. I think they change based on the needs. I I don't (laughs) think that it's all there all the time, but in order to make this little visual trick work, they kind of had to cheat. Yeah, yeah. 
you mentioned uh, exploding the myth of the utopia earlier, and I think that this is an episode that more than maybe any other challenges that utopia. Uh, the one proposed by Gene Roddenberry, it suggests that hard decisions will always need to be made to preserve the utopia. And DS9 as a program, especially in its later seasons, have habitually challenged that paradise that you mentioned that the Federation represents. You mentioned um, Cisco mentioning that it's it's easy to be a saint in paradise. What do you think? Like, do you think that Gene, had he been around to see it, would have approved of an episode like this? Do you think he would have thought that his perfect future society would still need to search its collective soul over issues like this? I think that Gene might have pushed back against this just because by the time he was working on Star Trek The Next Generation, mm. he had embraced a uh, a view of his own creation which did away with a lot of the conflict, which is what... Uh, led to many of the early seasons of TNG being a bit watery, a bit wishy-washy. Mm -hmm. And sadly, you know, I hate to say it, but it really wasn't until after Gene passed that the producers were free to explore uh, more morally complex issues and take a more nuanced view of Gene's creation. And while some people would look at that as a betrayal of Gene's vision of a future with a better humanity, I think that in many respects it's uh, more respectful to say that humanity has not just reached some magic pinnacle from which it is now perfect and can do no wrong, mm -hmm. but rather to say that goodness is something that we have to continually strive for, that you know, sometimes you take a step forward, you take two steps back. Uh, I, I think that it is laudable to sort of show the notion that, yes, humanity wants to be better, but that sometimes... Uh, it is necessary to compromise uh, and that this does not necessarily undo the good that is done, but that sometimes people have to be the ones like it. Basically, Cisco is acting as a sin eater is yeah. really what he's doing here. Yeah. He's taking on the burden of shame, of sin, of guilt so that others don't have to. Yeah. Um I'm sure you can speak to this with authority, having written for the show, but was it a stated goal of Berman and Pillar and also Moore and Bear to try to wear away at the idea of a utopia and show the scaffolding of compromise and intrigue that would be required to hold it up? I don't know about that. I was never in the room for those kind of discussions. As a sure. freelancer, I was really only in the room when we were doing the break sessions for the episodes that I worked on. Yeah. Um, but the sense that I got was that what was most important to them at any point on any episode was finding something that was honest and true about the struggle in the human condition, whether the character involved was human or otherwise. The core idea of the show was to explore the basically the moral and the emotional struggle of being. Mm -hmm. And I think that the show was about that from the very beginning, which is what I always loved about it. Sure. And uh, I think that Deep Space Nine, more than any of the others, was about exploring conflict in human relations and finding moral nuance. Uh, and I think that it did so more bravely and more deeply than The Next Generation did, than Voyager did, Enterprise. Uh, and just by dint of the fact that it was made... 30 years after the original series, right. I think it was able to do more complex and more nuanced work than the original series was. Yeah, this is often described as one of the 
you know, quote unquote, darkest episodes in terms of the issues that it that deals with and the way it challenges Roddenberry's vision of the peaceful human future. Do you think that Star Trek as a property can endure moral ambivalence like this for long? I'd be interested in your take, especially as an author of several Mirror Universe novels where treachery is sort of de rigueur. Well, I don't know if you can say that it could survive this for long. I don't think you would want this to become the new baseline of what mm. Star Trek represents. But I think what's important about this episode is that you've got Cisco sort of taking this descent into the darkness and yet he's doing it for all the right reasons. He's trying to justify it to himself. I think the very fact that he comes out of this bearing this guilt and trying to rationalize it is a point in his favor. If he were a sociopath, if he were beyond redemption, if the Federation were truly corrupt, he would not feel guilt. He would feel righteous. He would sure. feel justified. But he does not feel righteous. He basically knows that terrible moral wrongs have been engaged in here, but he's weighing the cost of evil on a small scale versus the large-scale good that it will serve. Yeah. And that's a very complex philosophical debate to have with oneself. I think that also, if you were to look at my Mirror Universe novels in particular, mm -hmm. uh, not so much the first one uh, that I did, which was The Sorrows of Empire, uh, but even there, I, I started seeding the idea that the universe itself is not evil. It has simply gone down some paths that have benefited uh, an evil or a selfish worldview. But, but I see the possibilities of hope, of redemption, of change. And I actually pursued that starting in the, uh, the Sorrows of Empire. It ends with Spock having laid plans for some grand revolution, some grand change in the galactic social order, and he sacrifices himself in order to accomplish it. And his last thought, as they basically blow his brains out, is, I've won. Hmm. And then we follow that up in uh, a, a follow-up novel that I wrote around the same time, Originally under pseudonym, although it's now the secret is out that I wrote under the name. <laughs> I wrote under the name Sarah Shaw, a uh -huh. DS9 era Mirror Universe story in the Obsidian Alliances volume uh, called Saturn's Children, mm -hmm. and Saturn's Children is basically about the struggle within the Terran Rebellion after some of the DS9 episodes, where you've got Eddington and Smiley O'Brien trying to put this thing together. But they've got other people co-opting their movement. They've got people who are just as evil, just as cruel as the uh, Klingon-Cardassian alliance that they're fighting against. And so there I start getting into the question of, you know, how do you have a rebellion without betraying all of your own ideals? Sure. And, then, and then I've got the conclusion of the Terran Rebellion, the revolution. I go from rebellion to full-on revolution in the novel, Mirror Universe novel, Rise Like Lions. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we see so we see the revolution. So even though I took on the mirror universe which is thought to be the darker vision of Star Trek, uh just to put, you know, a, a fun spin on it, I start dragging it back toward the light. Sure. And of course it wouldn't be interesting if everything was just flipped and everything was always bad there and there was no struggle with with good at all. Yeah, one of the things I and we're sort of veering off the top of the episode, <laughs> okay. we'll, but we'll come back to it. Sure. One of the things that always sort of bugged me about Deep Space Nine's treatment of the mirror universe was that after Crossover, which was a little bit sort of campy and a little questionable in some of its sexual politics, <laughs> after that, almost every return to the Mirror Universe was treated as something campy, almost comical. I got the feeling that the writing staff never really 
took it seriously. That to them, the idea of this parallel universe was just a joke, a chance to do something you couldn't possibly do on the show, uh, a chance to see the bad bad boy, bad girl personas of the characters we know and right. love. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to, you know, years later, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV series Fringe. Sure. But Fringe actually took a really brilliant approach to parallel worlds, parallel universes, where you don't have a good one and an evil one. You just have two different sets of possibilities and outcomes. Yeah. So I decided to approach the mirror universe storytelling the same way, which was to say the universe is not inherently and fatally condemned to be a reflection of evil. It is rather a universe that, or a galaxy that has gone down an alternate path that has turned out in many ways tragically. And, yeah. but that does not mean it has to stay on that path. Yeah. I uh, was going back to, uh, for the moment to what we were talking about before and moral ambivalence and character motivation. Uh, I'm reminded about Quark's speech to Nog in the episode uh, Siege of AR-558. Mm-hmm. He talks about how, you know, this isn't the Starfleet that you know, and essentially that humanity is, is nice until they aren't, which he says, he brings up in a negative way, but it seems to me like what he's really pointing out, if you want to look at it in a positive way, is that humans aren't going to accept a negative status quo, even if it means violating you know, the principles they have uh, based on this you know beautiful utopia they have. They're not going to let somebody just tear it down, which is sort of like a defining characteristic, I think, of humans uh, in, yeah. in the uh, Star Trek world. Very much so. I mean, he's basically saying humans are fine as long as their bellies are full and their, their homes <laughs> yeah. are safe. But, you know, the moment you start lighting their worlds on fire, you find out they are still savages. They are yeah. still dangerous, very dangerous. And you saw a, a similar moment, uh, although in a different uh, tone, when uh, Cisco in uh, this episode, Pale Moonlight, tries to come to Quark and has to have Quark drop the charges against Grayson Polar. <laughs> right. And, and he basically just comes right out and says, what's it going to take to get you to drop the charges? And Quark is, says, that sounds an awful lot like you're offering me a bribe, Captain. <laughs> it's like, what's it going to take? And it's like, and, and this, for some reason is the most reassuring thing Quark has ever heard, that he has long suspected that deep down in Cisco's heart of hearts, there was a little bit of him that was Ferengi. And, <laughs> and that it proves the rule of acquisition, every man has his price. Right, right. And, uh, uh, <laughs> it, it's, and it's just a fun little moment in that you know this makes him feel closer to Cisco at a time when Cisco feels as if he's being pulled farther and farther away from everybody. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great funny moment in the episode. And Quark is a great character, but I think I always like him best when they use him sparingly. And like when they bring him in, like he's coming from another show. Yeah, like he'll like like a like a suspect in an episode of Barney Miller or like a defendant in Night Court. Like I'm just minding my own business, <laughs> officer, and I don't know where this guy. I'd be amazed if any of our audience even knows about the shows that I'm referring to. But oh, uh, I love Barney Miller and uh, <laughs> and Night Court. I remember you know, with Bull and. Right. Yeah. 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 Great shows. Great shows. Uh, well, let's let's go back. Let's talk about Cisco. Uh, he's a man who is subjected to extreme pressures over the course of the series and has arguably changed the most out of any captain as a result of those pressures. Do you agree with Cisco's decision personally? It's hard to say. I mean, unless you are in that situation facing wartime, facing the loss of everything you stand for, it's hard to know what choice you would make yeah. in that moment. Watching it unfold in the moment, you feel like at every time, you know, at every single moment in the episode, Cisco makes a rational, defensible choice. 
the problem is that as it keeps going wrong, he keeps doubling down. And he even admits at one point that the point at which it becomes clear that they're talking about uh, possibly sabotaging Breenak's ship or whatever, mm. that he says, you know, this is the point at which I should have said no and walked away. I think it was the point when they he was asked to hand over the biomimetic gel. Right, right. And that's the point where he says, you know, I should have taken that moment to say, no, the cost is too high and walked away, but I didn't. Right. Because even, he, yeah, because he, he believes in his cause. He believes his cause is just. Right. And now he becomes something the, of the aggressor um, when he has to talk down Bashir, who is sort of like the moral canary in the coal mine where he's like, no, I don't know what we're doing here, but this isn't right. Yeah. And he has it, to step over that line and say, well, we're going to do it anyway. And Bashir is the one saying, you know, you know, I'm, I'm going to need that order in writing, Captain. And, of course, Cisco says, I thought you might. And he hands it to him. And, <laughs> and then Bashir says, I'm still going to file. A, I'm going to note this in my log, and I'm still going to file a formal protest with Starfleet Medical. Yeah. It's like even in the face of written orders, Bashir is still standing up to him. And yeah. that, that is really, you know, a great sort of example of the, the moral core uh, of Bashir, which is why I always loved Alexander Siddig's portrayal of that character. Well, it's interesting to think what some of the other captains might have done in a similar situation. Um, like, would Picard have made the same choice? Uh, what would uh, Janeway or Kirk have done? I don't think Picard would have taken the path that Cisco did. I yeah. think that Picard would have tried to talk his way out of it. He would have tried to talk a Romulan into the war and then probably would have failed. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know I, I can't begin to imagine what Janeway would have done in that situation. She might have uh tried to you know goad or force the Dominion into showing its hand. Right. But th there's something uniquely Cisco about the way this played out. This is the man who on first meeting Q decks him. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there there's a very kind of straight at the problem uh approach that is unique. Yeah, Benjamin and, Cisco, and, and knowing knowing as we do that he is a character of that mold, it is it's tragic but yet fascinating to see him slowly sucked into this morass and wanting to keep his hands clean and just being continually drawn into this while trying to to pull back and then finally just being stuck in the in in the dead middle of it. Yeah, and then that moment when they get the word that the ship has been destroyed, that Senator Vrenak has been assassinated, and is. Uh, subordinates all immediately are looking at the reports from the Tal Shiar and Starfleet Intelligence and saying it looks like the Dominion, and they're all feeling pretty good about it, and he's the one person in the room who knows who the real saboteur was, yeah. and he says, excuse me, and he gets up and he walks out, <laughs> right. and he walks into Garak's tailor shop and without a single word of preamble, backhands him across the face, <laughs> knocks Garak over his own pile of folded clothes, and just lights into him. It's like, this is what you planned from the start. You knew the rod wouldn't pass inspection. You knew we were going to have to blow up Vrenak's ship. And Garrick, of course, hedges his bet. He's like, you know, I didn't know for sure, but I thought there was a good chance that Graith and Tolar might not uh, be up to <laughs> sure. the task. So sure I planned for contingencies. Sure. And yeah, it's like, right. it's like, yeah, yeah, sure you did. This was the plan <laughs> all along, and you knew it. You yeah, do it. <laughs> Speaking of Garrick, uh, portrayed, of course, wonderfully by Andrew Robinson. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think Cisco's fate was sealed early on when he went to him. I mean, he knows this guy is former Obsidian Order. He must have known, if not 
understood or comprehended that Garrick was going to do whatever he had to do to accomplish his goal. Right. And of course, he says that he first goes to Garrick because he's hoping Garrick will leverage contacts that he still has on Cardassia Prime to try and find actual intel. Yeah. And of course, as Garrick says, within a day of reaching out to all these old contacts, all these old contacts are dead, right. uh, which, which is a testament to the efficiency of Dominion security. Yes. Uh, but then he continues to keep Garak in the loop and, and to enlist Garak's assistance. And I think it was Andrew Robinson who pointed out very clearly that, uh, you know, from his point of view, the moral of the episode is you don't get into bed with the devil unless you're ready to have sex. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. And Garak gets him in almost this sort of Lady Macbeth situation where Cisco's recoiling at what they're doing. They're bribing people. They're offering biomimetic gel to God knows who. And Garak's like, yeah, what did you think this was going to be? Yeah, Garrick's like, you know, be a man! Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Not, 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 a me- not verbatim, but yes. Right. Uh, there's a metaphor about doors that gets used several times. You know, Cisco talks about going through the door and locking it, and then, of course, Garrick sets it to explode. So there's, there's no going back. Oh, right. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but you're right. There's a wonderful parallel regarding the use of doors. It's funny. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, let's, let's talk about the character of Renak, played excellently by amazing character actor Stephen McCaddy. He calls Cisco uh, not necessarily inaccurately the man that started the war with the Dominion, and he's a wonderfully dry character. I particularly love uh, the scene where he's talking to Cisco before he shows him the the tape, and he's he's critiquing the Romulan ale. Um, but as the negotiation continues, he, he continues to critique it, but it becomes clear that he's talking about Cisco's rhetoric and not the ale anymore. You know, it, right. it really is a good replica. <laughs> it's just yeah. so, it's great. Yeah, yeah, he did a, a great job, but I think that his description of Cisco as the man who started the war with the Dominion is fairly accurate. Cisco knew exactly what he was doing when he started laying in mines in front of the wormhole. Right. You know, he, he established that field of cloaked mines. He did it knowing that it was going to be seen as an act of provocation, that he was taking the situation from uh, kind of an unstable, uh, tenuous detente like almost a cold war and that this was going to be the act that was going to push everything into open hostilities he knew what he was doing he did it anyway yeah so i think cisco does definitely bear the responsibility of being the guy who pushed the issue and you know and the thing is in so doing he may have actually saved the alpha quadrant because if he hadn't the situation would have festered the dominion would have slowly amassed resources, territory, material, personnel. And then when they did finally, on their terms, move into open hostilities, there would have just been an overwhelming wave. There would have been no way to fight back, no basis for defense. By laying down that defense and preempting their strategy and then forcing them to act on his timetable, I think that it could be argued that Cisco actually saved the quadrant. Yeah. And, of course... Vrenak and, and the Romulans in general are just being smart and working in their own self-interest by kind of staying out of the conflict. It's interesting to note, I know that we get into a little bit of Romulan stuff in DS9, but I always wonder what the real status of the Romulan Empire is. You know, they come back in TNG, they've mm-hmm. been gone for a long time, and I never feel like we really get an idea of their actual strength or what their goals are, really. Like, they're, sometimes they're just kind of skullduggery-ish for skullduggery's sake. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting if you look at the original series, the way the Romulans were first portrayed, they were the ones who had this strange sense of honor. 
Honor yeah. was a big deal with the Romulans. Yeah. Uh, they almost had kind of a an Asian quality to them, like samurai mixed with ancient Rome. And yeah. then you had the Klingons, who were just sort of your your savage warriors, bent on conquest, bent on empire. So if you think about it in a certain respect, uh, the, the Klingons in the original series era were sort of the analog for Russia to Federation as uh, NATO and the West. Yeah, yeah. And then where do the Romulans fit in? Do the Romulans represent the Chinese? Do the Romulans simply re- represent sort of a pan-Asian concern? Um, it's hard to say, or, or maybe they're just meant to, you know, be sort of analogous to, you know, more honorable empires. But it's interesting then that this principle of honor gets grafted, taken from the Romulans, grafted onto the Klingons in the next generation uh, iteration of Star Trek, and the Romulans suddenly become the master deceivers, the the, right. the, the schemers, the duplicitous ones. Right. So it's interesting. Uh, to see that this sort of cultural shift has occurred. Uh, but so I, I don't really know where that came from, but it's also interesting if you look at the names, you know, the Klingon Empire, Romulan Star Empire, by definition, an empire is one in which one dominant power, uh, you know, whether you want to call it a nation state or whatever, brings others into its orbit and allows those subject, those uh, client states to retain a certain degree of autonomy and, uh, you know, internal sovereignty as long as they are loyal to the parent state. Right. If you, for instance, you look at the Roman Empire, sure. uh, it, it had a whole bunch of client states in Gaul, uh, Espana, whatever. Yeah. So I think it's safe to assume that the Romulan Star Empire is not just some big homogenous mass of Romulans, but that there's like a core group of Romulan star systems, and then they probably have expanded out and simply extended their influence over a number of other smaller, less advanced, less powerful civilizations and put them under their banner. And I suspect the Klingons did much the same thing. Yeah, and that all maps onto their sort of Roman sort of origins or or being based on the Roman Empire. Um, Balance of Terror is a really great episode to show that sort of sense of honor that uh, that the Romulans have. Yeah, I mean, especially the way that they respect other warriors in combat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the notion that the Romulan commander, who's never named in that episode, uh, although he's played by Mark Leonard, so maybe yeah. it was Sarek's twin brother, for all we know. <laughs> sure, right. Um, but the fact that you know he feels like he and Kirk could have been friends in another uh, iteration, in another world, another universe, had they not ended up on opposite sides, that you know these are two men who really understand each other. Right. Yeah, well, going back to Vrenak for a moment, I was sad to see the character go because he was interesting. Uh, yes. But I suppose that he has to be interesting in Rye and attractive to make his loss impactful. If he was just a dumb jerk, we wouldn't care when Garrick blows him up. Right. Uh, it's interesting that he's a fabulous adversary just because he is so smart, so savvy, so dry. I mean, when he first comes aboard the station, the man who started the war with the Dominion, <laughs> I thought you'd be taller. Right. And Cisco says, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Honestly, Captain, my opinion of Starfleet officers is so low, you would have to work very hard indeed to disappoint me. It's right. like, God, wow, what, what cutting dialogue. It's fabulous. I love this guy from the moment he comes aboard, just because anybody who can cut Cisco down like that and get away with it, sure, that, that's high comedy in DS9. I kind of like Grayson Tolar as well, uh, the forger that Garrick gets to oh. fake the optolithic. Oh, lot. right. 
Yeah, one of the conditions of my parole is I'm never allowed to go back to Klingon space. <laughs> oh, that'll be difficult. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, he's he's kind of a perv, and he did stab Quark, but I, I could almost I could see him joining the constellation of characters on the station. Except, you know, oops, no, he's dead yeah. now. Yep, oops, he's dead. Is there a moment or a scene or a character in this episode that stands out as being really exceptional to you? Besides what we've already mentioned. Besides what we've already mentioned, I, I love the uh, scene near the beginning when Cisco is sort of role-playing out the situation with Dax, trying to figure out how to argue his case persuasively to the Romulans. Sure. And Dax is playing the part of, you know, uh, you know, random Romulan number one, and right. basically undercutting all of his arguments just the way the Romulans would. Uh, and then when they break character and the two of them laugh together, uh, I just I love that little character moment between Cisco and Dax. Yeah, and they uh, that was going to be my uh, special pick too. So, um if they they don't hit it too hard either uh, just in terms of the script, like they just kind of immediately go into it and they don't try to overexplain what's going on to the audience and you see immediately uh just how well these two know each other and why they make such a good team. Why he calls her old man, you know, the fact right. that you know they go back to another lifetime, another host. Yeah. It does raise one question for me, though, because Cisco says that he can't even tell Dax about the plot, but I wonder why not. Well, no, it's not, that he, it's not that he can't tell her about the plot. I mean, at one point, they even suggest early in the episode bringing the, you know, forging the evidence and tricking the Dominion. What he yeah. can't talk to Dax about is the lengths to which he has gone to carry out the plot. He can't confess to Dax that he you know, was uh, a complicit in the assassination of Vrenak. He can't, oh, okay. he can't bring her in because the moment she knows, she becomes accessory after the fact. I see. Okay. Okay. That's he, interesting. If he confesses to anybody, anybody who knows and doesn't report him becomes criminally culpable under Starfleet uh, Code of Military Justice. So he is really taking, he's going down with the ship. At he's, go, he's going down alone to save everybody around him. If he right. doesn't tell anybody, if everybody else has plausible deniability, if he never confessed, then they are not legally culpable for having protected him. But if he sure. tells any of them and they don't report him, they become accessories after the fact and under Starfleet Code of Military Justice could be court-martialed with him. He yeah. has to. He has to go down alone he has to carry the whole burden alone because anybody he tells either has to turn him in and then bear the guilt of doing that to their commanding officer and friend or they have to run the ri he has to run the risk of taking them down with him yeah right and as he says you know he, that he, he can live with it um, which is a line that was added by uh, reportedly by I, I receive and bear as a reference to um, john wayne's character in the man who shot liberty balance i love that movie yeah, I remember yeah. watching that in uh, college. The funny thing was, this is another funny little aside. Sure. Um, the whole thing in Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is you've got Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne are part of a love triangle with uh, a character named Hallie. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time that I saw that movie for the first time, I was a sophomore in college at film school. I had been dating a girl named Hallie. We were <laughs> living in the same sort of shared space in a dorm. Sure. Uh, she ends up dating some other guy and, uh, I come into the room and my friend Glenn is watching man of shop Liberty Valance and Hallie's there and her new guy is there. And I walk in on the line of John Wayne saying to Jimmy Stewart, Hallie's your girl now. <laughs> and I just kind of looked at this and I shook my head and I turned and I walked back out of the room. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's okay. That's that's rough. That I, is a uh, timing is everything. Yep, that's a unique situation <laughs> you find yourself in. But anyway, getting back to Cisco's line, uh, it's a great set of delivery because he repeats the line because you can tell he's trying to persuade himself. He's trying oh, yeah. to convince himself, and the fact that his last line is "computer erase that entire personal log," it really kind of uh, betrays the fact that even he doesn't really believe it. But yeah. he he has to live with it. Whether he can or not, it's hard to say. Yeah. This is Ron Moore's favorite episode. Um, and I think that it's uh, it's one of my favorite. Um, I think it's very simple. The structure uh, is very simple in the way that it plays out. But, of course, it's much more complicated in the questions that it asks. And it's almost a, a bottle episode. I mean, everything takes place on the station. Um, it's very contained in terms of where everything happens and the amount of characters is small. And I think that it accomplishes quite a bit for not being splashy or one of the big uh, episodes that features a big battle, uh, be it with ships or with phasers or whatever. Just it's this small little drama, and yet it achieves so much. You're right; it's a bottle episode, but and and except for like maybe the one uh, exception is they have like the meeting between the Dominion uh, between Wayun and the two Cardassians. That, but even yes, that's, that's it, but even that's just a redressed DS9 interior. Yes. So yeah, and we do. So it's a great bottle episode. And bottle episodes when when you're a freelancer, or I guess back in the '90s. To be a freelancer pitching to a TV series, bottle episodes were the way to go. That was how you made sales. I have a crackpot uh, crack theory about this episode. Um, so Cisco uh, posts these casualty lists uh, every Friday. Yes. It becomes one of the running motivations behind um, why he does what he does. And I was thinking about it because I don't remember hearing like days of the week very often, like the uh, the – Scandinavian or Norse-based days of the week. And I was going back through, I won't bore you with my the four results of my research, but it seems like it isn't really until DS9 that it, the days of the week start appearing in the scripts, like uh, Friday, Monday. And I wonder if that has to do with the way they tell time on starships, whereas it's stardate this, stardate that, and now we're on a space station. There's probably a more regular sort of cycle or week. Um, after this, of course, like Voyager, they mentioned days of the week, but you never really see it show up all that much uh, until we reach DS9. Well, I mean, you had it in uh, Star Trek Generations, which I think precedes this episode. Oh, well, Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, that's being installed on Tuesday. Right. I guess because Tuesday, they must have focus grouped it and found out Tuesday is the funniest day of the, the week. Funniest, the funniest day of the week. Maybe, maybe that is what it is. Uh, speaking of uh, funny things, uh, again, another episode that's kind of light on comedy, but did you have a favorite joke or, or comedy bit? Uh, again, I, I think that you just you can't beat Quark. As he's sitting there bleeding, uh, you know, and I think uh, they were saying, well, you know, when he's mad about his shirt, right? Like, this is this is like a really expensive shirt. It's like yeah, he's just right. been stabbed. He's worried about the cost of his shirt. I right, love, right. I love this guy. I love this guy. <laughs> yeah. I, I like the moment that we mentioned before where um, later in the episode, Cisco and Garrick are talking about uh, where Tolar is and Garrick says that he's locked him in his quarters and he's he's given the, imp the impression that if he tries to open the door, it'll explode. And Cisco's like, I hope that's just uh, you're not serious about that. And Garrick's like, uh, d don't dwell on minutia like that. It's fine. One of the uh, fun little details is a little bit of trivia for you. Uh, sure. The casualty reports are never... They never actually show them in any great detail on the screen. The camera sort of only has them at an oblique angle. But you can see they fill an entire one of those uh, wall comm panels. They actually sure. fill them with a bunch of names. And although many of the names repeat, uh, 
uh, under different listings of ships. Um, those a lot of the people who are named in those casualty lists are members of the production staff, sure, sure, art department, and two of them, uh, Braswell, Elizabeth, and Clark, Margaret. Elizabeth Braswell used to be the executive producer at Simon and Schuster Interactive. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I worked for her uh, around that around that time, around the time this episode was made. I worked for Liz, uh, or actually shortly, actually a few years before this episode was made. I worked for Liz at SNS Interactive um, on the Omnipedia, the Star Trek Klingon CD-ROM, the Captain's Chair CD-ROM, um, and Liz has since gone on to be a very successful writer in her own right. Uh, she writes under both her own name and under the name Tracy Lynn. She wrote uh, the Chloe King novels, which were uh, adapted into a short-lived ABC series, The Nine Lives of Chloe King. Okay, sure. And Margaret Clark uh, was at the time a senior editor or possibly a managing editor of Star Trek fiction. Uh, she's still involved to this day with Star Trek books, although she currently uh, works as a freelance editor. But Margaret uh, is one of the editors who works acquiring new Star Trek stories uh, for the novels. Uh, and she's been my editor on a great many of the Star Trek novels I've written. And so those are two of my favorite names in the sure. casualty list. <laughs> it's too bad uh, that they are on the casualty list. <laughs> it's a real shame. Uh, I've heard about that. Uh, the production people putting, you know, on uh, acudograms, you know, putting little in jokes like that. Like in Sick Bay, there's a meter that says uh, medical insurance remaining on TNG and things exactly. like that. Exactly. Stuff that was yeah. never going to show up uh, in oh, standard no. definition. But ne the funny thing <laughs> is, when they did high def transfers, right. uh, some of that stuff became almost visible. Uh, it, uh, if you have like a large high def, like a 4K screen, and you see like sure. the, the high def transfers now on next gen, some of those little in-jokes in the background are actually legible now. I'm always pausing and looking for that when I watch these on Netflix now that they are remastered and I've got a pretty big TV. I'm always like, mm, can I see any little secrets here? That's why I'm so disappointed that Deep Space Nine uh, has not had the remastering treatment. Uh, it's yeah. still in standard def on uh, Netflix. There's still no Blu-ray. And again, a big part of the problem was that because they produced a lot of the special effects in post-production on video, there is no high-def film version. So they would have to reproduce all of the special effects, all of the visual effects would have to be done again from scratch. Yeah. Uh, and I think they would have to go back and I, I think, I'm not sure, but I think DS9, now Voyager, I think Voyager was the last series shot on film. I think they started shooting Enterprise on high-def video. Okay. Uh, so Enterprise is an easier transfer uh, but I think both Voyager and DS9 were shot on film, so they'd have to go back to original negatives, they'd have to reproduce all the special effects from scratch, and mm -hmm. redo all the effect shots, and while I think it would be worth it, because I think DS9 is the greatest Star Trek series ever made uh, so far, because I haven't seen Discovery, so I want to you know qualify that with so far. So far. So far. Sure. Um <laughs> I I just I get the impression that it never had the ratings or the audience, and they I guess the feeling on the part of the studio seems to be that there economically isn't uh, enough of a market for DS9 to warrant the investment in bringing it forward in a high def transfer, and that makes me very sad. Yeah, I know a lot of fans that would really disagree with that. Well, I'm sure they would disagree. I disagree with it, uh, but it seems to be the way the uh, the, the cookie has crumbled. Yeah. Well, as we wrap up here, do you have any parting shots or, or last thoughts about the episode? 
just that it uh, I, I rewatched it last night and I continue to be wowed by what a, a wonderful performer Avery Brooks is. Oh yeah. Avery was the it was his performance in the Deep Space 9 pilot episode that sucked me into the, watching the whole show because most of the first season except for the pilot and duet most of the first season is a little weak. Yeah. Uh and really was not the most compelling season of Star Trek I've ever seen. But that pilot episode his performance is so raw, so emotional, so dynamic that you know he has me in tears by the end of the episode as he's dealing with the grief and the loss of his wife and the whole yeah. thing about you exist here he played it so magnificently that i weep when i watch that episode and yeah. and uh so avery brooks really i think is arguably the uh, the best series lead the best series anchor that a star trek series has ever had i mean watching him act against Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart is, you know, uh, no small, you know, beer either. He's got a very different style, though. He's very reserved. He's very dignified. He's the quiet center of the scene. But then yeah. you have Avery Brooks, who can just fill a scene with screen presence. Uh, and watching the two of them act together in the DS9 pilot was uh, a very impressive thing. Yes, yes, absolutely. And also just the character, I think, of Cisco. There's a thing, as I'm sure you know in TV, that's sort of the reset, where we want to come back to these same characters that we enjoy every week. We don't want things to change too much. And, of course, as TV has progressed and become more like cinema in a lot of ways, that's kind of gone now, at least on quote-unquote good shows. Yeah. And so we always knew that... Picard was, he was going to struggle with the problems that he faced. He would doubt himself sometimes, but he'd always be Picard. And yet Cisco gets this chance over the course of the seven seasons to really go from that widower who's kind of lost and doesn't really know why he's on the space station to being what he becomes, which is a hero and, you know, essentially the, you know, the emissary of the prophets and just solves the, uh, the whole war thing. And the gets to develop. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> he is. He is the Kizat Yeah. Uh, I think this is a great episode too. Um, it's just I'm really impressed by its economy of script and story. It, I mean, it may it, it makes you ask yourself, what is this amazing world that they live in worth, mm -hmm. and and what what can I see my favorite characters do and still root for them? Yeah, they do so much with so little in this episode. I mean, they there's no big effects, there's no flashy moments, and yet the weight of it, the uh, just the sheer drama of it, is utterly compelling. And so much of that comes down to Brooks and Robinson. Just selling that episode from the ground yeah. up, building it around themselves. They're almost like, you know, a, a white dwarf and a black hole sort of swirling around each other in this dance. And you know that eventually it's all going to collide in fire and destruction. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but but you, you can't look away. It's just such a magnificent episode. Um, and yeah, I would definitely rank it top ten, possibly even top five. I'd be willing to put it in my top five of all yeah. Star Trek episodes ever. Uh, last time you were on the show, we talked about your favorite captain, and you had remarked that it was dependent on the situation. Uh, you'd want Kirk in a fight, Picard to help you negotiate. We had kind of talked about this earlier, but if you had to take Cisco out of this episode and insert any other captain into this to achieve presumably an acceptable outcome, who would it be? I guess I'd have to go with Kirk. Okay. I mean, I think that of all the other captains, I mean, I worry that Picard... Probably, you know, he would have come up with a morally acceptable outcome, 
but maybe not an effective outcome that served the Federation's needs. Yeah, and also uh, he's always been he's always been honest about you know like he says in the first duty that the the first duty of a of an officer is truth, is the truth, right? Yeah. And I get the feeling that uh, I'm not sure about Janeway. Janeway might have also been willing to bend the rules. Uh, you know, she's you know a take no crap kind of officer. Yeah, she might have gotten the job done, but I, I don't really. I've never really watched much of Enterprise, so I don't really know about Jonathan Archer. But from what I've okay. seen, I'm not impressed. Uh, okay. <laughs> so if I had to substitute somebody else in, the one I would have most faith in resolving this situation, finding a way to win, uh, you know, win the day at some cost, it would have to be Kirk. Do you think his strategy would be similar to Cisco's? I think it might. Um, but again, it's hard to say. I mean, he seems to live in a different time, operate by a different moral code. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we were looking to produce a similar result in similar circumstances, maybe I should revise my answer. Maybe Janeway would be the one who would get the job done. Okay, sure. Yeah, I can see if she was presented with a plan that uh, that made sense, like if Garrick could present it to her and we can do this, we can do this. I can see her being okay with, you know, yeah, go ahead, make it so. Yeah, I could see her being willing to sacrifice her own conscience to save uh, the Federation at large, save the yeah, Alpha she- Quadrant. Yeah, she certainly does in in Voyager. Right, and she's you know just fighting to defend her ship, her crew. Um, so I, I, I definitely think that Janeway would have the the backbone of steel needed to pull this off. I agree. Well, David, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at at EIST Pod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? They can find my website at davidmac.pro. That's David Mac, M-A-C-K, dot P-R-O. And from there, you can get links to my Facebook page and to my Twitter feed and uh, my blog, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Um, anything, anything at all you can tell us about your upcoming Discovery novel? Um, let's see. The release date? Well, the release date, I believe, has been set by the publisher as May 23, 2017. Okay. That okay. should roughly coincide with the premiere of the show on CBS. I don't know the exact date uh, of the show's premiere, but uh, I'm hoping that uh, that the two will be relatively close together because I know they wanted to co-promote them. Uh, What I'm working on at the moment is the assumption that I am going to be telling a story that will involve the uh, main character and the hero ship, as we like to say, uh, (laughs) from the series Pilot. Uh, it will most likely be a prequel uh, to the series. So it'll be uh, a look at how the characters we see in the pilot got to be where they are and build the relationship that they have. Okay, interesting. And then beyond that, I really shouldn't say any more as I don't yet wow. have I – do, I don't have an approved outline. Oh, okay. I'm, okay. Cur- I'm currently in the middle of writing a Star Trek Titan novel called, oh, wow. called Fortune of War. That will be out at the end of next year. Okay. Uh, I recently finished writing and vetting copy edits on my Section 31 novel, Control, featuring Julian Bashir, and that is going to be out in March of 2017. Okay. So the uh, so next year is going to be kind of a busy year for me. I have the Section 31 novel out in March. I have a Discovery novel out in May. I have a Titan novel out by the end of the year. And then in the first quarter of 2018, at long last... 
uh, we will see the release of my novel, The Midnight Front, which is the first book in my dark art series for Tor. Well, David, good luck with your upcoming works, and thanks again for joining me. It was my pleasure being here. Thanks. And we are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.